invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 13. We're continuing our study on the kingdom parables, and it's been a heavy uh, time in the Word of God regarding ultimate things, the end, where things are trajectory, the trajectory of where things are going, and then how things will be. Um, Divided in the end between believers and unbelievers. These are heavy topics. The study of the kingdom parables is really the study of understanding what is really going on behind the scenes in God's mind and in his plan and in where things are going and what Jesus was doing at this stage in his ministry as he was drawing the proverbial line in the sand saying, believe and come in and see the secrets of the kingdom or reject and be distanced and moved away by parabolic teaching. He's settling into a parable teaching rhythm where he's just talking in these revelations of the kingdom that people are either going to say, I get it, I'm understanding why things are the way they are, and I need a savior, or I'm rejecting and moving away. And so Jesus is giving the parables of the kingdom throughout this chapter in Matthew 13 and They could be broken up into three categories. The first two are parables to define and describe the nature of the kingdom. The second that we're going to be looking at, the second two, are the, speaking of the power of the kingdom. And then the final ones that we'll see speak to uh, the appropriation of the kingdom, uh, the applications. In other words, the nature of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is this binary uh, understanding of those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. Those who are part of the good soil where your heart is soft and you want Jesus and you're receiving the word of God or you're rejecting the word of God. You are hard ground that says, I don't have time for this. You're rocky ground that kind of has a mixed faith where you're, you're unrooted and you're vulnerable to being scorched away through life's hardships and trials. Or you're the third soil that we talked about, which is the thorny soil, which is a admixture of I want God and I want his word and I want some depth, but I still want the world. I still want secret sin. I still want to hide things in my life away. And so I'm bifurcated. I'm split in half. Those three soils, the hard, rocky, and thorny are not true saving faith. The one saving faith is the soft soil that's receptive to the word of God and the Lord. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's the dividing line that God is setting up here through the teachings of Christ for us to learn about. And then the second um, part of the nature of the kingdom is the, um, the wheat and the tares where God sows or Christ sows good believers in the world, people who can know him, good seed, and then the devil sows bad seed. And so you have people who might look like believers but are really faking and they're not true believers. And you have this admixture in the world, and it creates this problem for Christians, where Christians say, if you're a good and loving God, then why did you allow bad things to happen? Why did you allow sin to happen in the first place? If you're this all-powerful God, then why is it the way that it is? And that parable, as we learn, teaches that we are to trust a sovereign and good God, a God who is only doing good things, only sowing, saving seed, where he's saving people out of a world of hardship. 
And so he's not culpably responsible for sin. He is holy. He is good. And yet he's also sovereign. He's the king over it all. And he has allowed for sin to happen in our world for his greater purposes so he could redeem people out of it. And instead of trying to interrupt this process or fix it or totally figure it out and understand it, we need to rest before God and trust him in his sovereignty that he's working everything out and he will reckon righteousness in the end. We leave the, the judgment to God in the end, in other words. We let him avenge the wrongs. We leave that with the Lord. So these are the secrets of the kingdom. If you look at verse 11, this is of chapter 13. For disciples, for Christians, it says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Secrets meaning revelations to understand why things are the way they are. What's wrong with the world? Sin. <laughs> what's the cause of what's wrong with the world? Sin. Going against God, against his law. What makes things right with you and God? Grace. Trusting his help and his help alone for saving grace. What's wrong with the world? Why is there a problem? Well, the problem of evil is what God allowed, but we are, instead of questioning God, we are to trust God and his sovereignty. Now he's opening in this second section in verses 31 through 33, really extending to verse 35. He's opening up two parables of the kingdom that speak of God's power. God is at work powerfully. And this power is to give you something. This secret of the kingdom, this something that wasn't understood before that now is understood to believers, this understanding of God's power and the expansive nature of the kingdom is to give you something. And this something that you need is found in this single word, you need hope. We all need hope. Yes, things are as bad as Christ has described in the nature of the kingdom, but when you understand the power of the kingdom, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he's building. When you understand that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worldwide, that he's forming the body of Christ, whether we are a smattering of churches all throughout the world or not, God's kingdom is advancing. And, it, and these parables point to his power that will ultimately be on display in the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. So every hardship you go through, every difficult life thud that you are nursing in your own heart needs to be lived in light of the kingdom that God is building. Yes, you might think that your contribution is small. You might think that your participation in church or as a believer is minuscule. But that small participating life that you live is part of the greater picture of God's kingdom that is being built. Please live your life in light of the kingdom because living your life in light of God building his kingdom is to live in light of hope. The fear of man brings a snare. But those who trust in the Lord, Proverbs 29, 25, those who trust in the Lord find a safe place. Are you afraid of somebody? You be honest with yourself, you're afraid of somebody in your life, somebody that's harboring something against you or holding something against you, remembering something against you, hurting you in a way, you need not fear, man. You can put your trust in the Lord. You can find your hope in God and be released from that fear. Find the safe place in Christ. And we see this in these 
kingdom explanations in verses 31 through 35. We're going to be next week going down to verse 44, the appropriation of the kingdom. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to come alive in your life? That's next week. But this week, let's find some hope in light of the nature of the kingdom. These are Jesus' kingdom parables the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and these are the ones that give us hope. We're looking at two of them. Two of them, we're going to look at the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31 through 32, and then verse 33 will be the kingdom of God um, being um, found in the hidden um, leavened bread. So let me read verse, verses 31 and 32, the first parable. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, in its branches. This is the kingdom of God in terms of God's expansive power. power. It's the mustard seed, verses 31 to 32. These next two parables make up the third and the fourth out of the seven in total. And these parables go together. The mustard seed parable and then the parable of the hidden leaven. These parables are making a single point that you need to write down, and it is simply this. Small measures of faith produce unimaginably powerful results. Small measures of faith, living your Christian life in small, obscure, hidden, tiny ways produce powerfully unimaginable results. Small beginnings build mature ends. Your life is compared to a mustard seed. This is an agricultural parable like the sower who's sowing seed in the field, but this is one tiny, minuscule-sized seed that's like invisible almost to the naked eye going out into a field. You are that mustard seed. You're just throwing yourself out there into the field. And then something unimaginably huge comes out of that seed. A mustard bush, which is like a tree, six foot around, 15 feet high, with branches that ultimately harden up and get strong enough for birds to flock in and nest and live out of this tiny, tiny little seed. It's incredible. The mustard seed. The mustard seed. This is who we are. This is what we are compared to. People have attempted to debunk scripture and say it's not true, it's not real, because the mustard seed is not actually scientifically the smallest seed. See, a cynic will always talk a little bit weird like this. Because they're on a roll. They're making their point. Well, I think that Jesus was not delivering a lesson in botany at this point, but he was also very specific to what he meant by what he was saying. First of all, he could have been using hyperbole just to say it's the smallest. 
It's categorically one of the smallest. It's like when the gospels talk about all of Jerusalem coming out to hear John the Baptist or all the group, you know, did every single person come? Well, it's sort of holism there just to say, Jesus is saying categorically, this is categorically in the family of smallest seeds, smallest seeds. And different people look at it, you know, different ways, but Jesus is making a ratio analogy to say this smallest of seeds categorically creates this giant bush categorically, which uh, incidentally is not an actual official tree, but it's a bush. It becomes like a tree. Jesus is using this to make his point. Uh, this Dr. L.H. Shinners of, of a herbarium who was a lecturer at Smithsonian said the mustard seed was the smallest noticed by people of the time of Christ. Barley, wheat, lentils, beans, or much larger seeds, weed families with the like uh, or smaller seeds like chickweed or unnoticed seeds, those categorically wild, not planted like a crop. This is a planted crop seed that is the smallest of that kind known at that time. Obviously, there's a seed, the tobacco seed is a little bit smaller that was planted in America. And so that really didn't, that didn't become known until the 16th century. So Jesus is well within his categorical rights to talk about this. This bush in Palestine grows so big that it becomes surrounded by birds who love the black seeds and they nest in that bush eventually as the branches grow stronger. He's talking in terms of a small, tiny seed to make his point. Matthew 17, 20 makes the same point. It says, because of your little faith, he was chiding the Pharisees, but he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is not talking about giving us miracle powers to actually move physical mountains. He's saying that if you sow the little seed, if you'll but take the step of faith, amazing things will happen. Paul prayed this, that, that in God, in his kingdom work, God would do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. In other words, we can't dream up the plan that God is doing out in, in our world that we don't even know about. As I've quoted John Piper before, in your trial, in your darkest moment, you might be able to define and discover about 50 to 100 things on a piece of paper that you think God is doing through that trial or that event or that faith measure that you're working through, that season of your life, whereas God is doing a million things behind the scenes that we can't even calculate or know. God's doing all these things. I've been recently reflecting on the, I think it was Jonathan Edwards' analogy where when you, um, you know, look at a tapestry, a really ornate woven tapestry, and you turn it over, it's just yarn going like this all over the place, and you turn it back over, and it's as if you're seeing God's plan, right? You turn it over, and you go, oh, from retrospect, that's what all of this chaos on this side means in the beautiful display of God's plan working all together, that we had no idea how he was weaving it up all together at the time. It's amazing. Judy and I just got back. We went to... Southern California, and we dropped off uh, two more of our Crotz kids. So our row first hour was quite smaller with three boys. Judy woke up uh, Saturday morning and said, man, this house now is filled with boys, and you need to still treat me like a woman and a lady. She is outnumbered. The dudes have the place. We have the run of the place, and there isn't, you know, Emmy anymore in there to navigate and to uh, 
you know, to just goal keep and keep everything at peace. But anyway, but so we were down there and, and Judy and I were meeting with people down at the college because Judy went there. I used to work there. That's where we met. And we've got two of our kids there. And so leaders are there. You have, you have kids that were there as college kids dropping off their kids and we're kind of reunioning. And we met with one couple that did our, you know, premarital counseling. And, you know, we've known them through the years, but 30-year relationship. And you just never know the lives that you're touching from 30 years ago until you live it and you look back and you see the way things are all networked out. They didn't know that we would end up in Alaska, that we would still be in ministry connection together. I mean, we're doing all kinds of things through those connections, even to, to think about and dream about reaching um, Alaskan natives, indigenous pulpits in the villages. And, you know, who knew? Who knew? Well, one person knew. God did. And it's a small seed. It's the small mustard seed that you sow that then comes back in greater ways. People think that the church is dead in America, that it's irrelevant nowadays. It's not been persecuted, so it's hard to see between something that's Christianized or genuinely Christian, but we need to think in terms of the gospel expanse that's happened in our world that's still going on, but also the worldwide gospel influence of missionaries that have come from English-speaking parts of the world where the Protestant Reformation gave birth to the English Reformation, and people were dying under Bloody Mary, and then missionaries were going out, and then Whitfield came here, and the Wesley brothers came here, and Jonathan Edwards grew up here, and it was pioneering the gospel over, and we're finishing off that pioneering phase, bringing the gospel to the villages, and that movement over all this time, but at the same time, South America, um, China, you hear of Korea, Japan, Africa, you don't think the church is dead in those areas, and places where there's the underground church, the persecuted church, revivals that are busting out, people hearing the word of God, the word of God going out on radio, the word of God going out through the internet. It's pulsating around the world. God's kingdom is being built. All of this from the tiny seed of Christ who came, who was born in Bethlehem in a manger in this small, obscure, sort of hick town area, nowhere on the map whatsoever. Jerusalem would have never been known of in our world had Christ not been there. And he called the three, he called the 12, he called the 70, he called the 120 in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came, the church populated through Pentecost to the world, to the nations, to the languages of the people, 3,000 and whole cities. And all of this is building around our world. And this is just the in-between phase. Think Jesus came, we're in the interim phase. This is the lull time in the story. Jesus is going to come back. The millennial kingdom will begin. Then at the end of that, the new heavens and the new earth. And then it's a big party forever. And it's amazing that the Lord is in charge of all of this. We have inklings of this in terms of the experience we have on, in church, the joy we have in fellowship, the unity we have. The Bible is the most uh, sort of expansively influential, most published book in the entire world you have culture, you have governments that have been impacted by the Bible, by the laws of the Bible. Language has been impacted by the Bible, art, literature, science. All of these things have been impacted by truth. The Puritans, they came here by way of pilgrims through the Mayflower, landed at Plymouth, and then our nation was born as a Christian nation with those moorings and became the way it was for so long. So the investment idea is, look, what you can't accomplish in one year by five years or 10 years is unthinkably powerful. And that's the idea of the mustard seed. It's sown, 
and it becomes this lush and lively tree. We'd want to present people with the tree, right? Enter the kingdom of God, join the kingdom of God, join this lively, flourishing bush, but we just give the mustard seed. It's what you are. You're just a mustard seed. We're just the smattering of churches around, just preaching the gospel and giving God the glory to say, come into this refuge, come into this kingdom. It's not in vain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord reigns forever. We sow not a perishable seed, but something that is imperishable. We run the race not for a perishable wreath, but an imperishable wreath that will not fade away. The unfading crown of glory. So as you live your life, here's the principle. Live your life and all of its hardships in view of God's powerful kingdom and you'll find hope. You'll find hope. You'll find a reason to do it. You'll find a reason to show up. You'll find a reason to serve. You'll find a reason to invest, to share, to have the hard conversation, to make the phone call, to take a stand on truth, to evangelize lost people because God wins and he's building his kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In church history, the church has been called the church militant. We are the church militant. What does that mean? We are fighters. We fight the good fight of faith. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are the army of God, the people of God. We are the church militant. And we're also called the church triumphant. We're destined to win the battle. In the new heavens and the new earth, we triumph. We reign with Christ. We're co-equal heirs with him. You think of trees, just to build on the tree analogy, if you... Cut one down, you can see the rings that are there, and the rings all tell the, the level of history that this tree, this inanimate object, has observed as it stood tall through wars, through undulations of government and society and trends, and it just stands. It just stands and grows and lives throughout ancient history into modern day. It stands and stands and builds, and wars come and wars go. And this tree is there. This is the metaphor that's used in ancient prophecy. Um, Ezekiel 17, on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it and it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar and under it will dwell every kind of bird, meaning Gentiles. In the shade of its branches, the birds of every sort will nest. Ezekiel 31, three through six, Assyria was a cedar of Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and a towering height and its top among the clouds. Waters nourished it, deep made it grow tall and making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high, all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs under its branches. All the beasts of the field gave birth to their young and under its shadow lived all great nations. It's a prediction of Revelation. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Pharisees wouldn't see this kingdom. The kingdom of God is, Luke 17, is not coming with signs to be observed, nor they say, Look, here it is. They can't do that. There, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Lord is, has brought the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is, 
him ruling from heaven sovereignly over all world events, over all of creation, over all of history. The kingdom of God comes in the church. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are the connection between heaven and earth here. Christ is our intercessor and he is the head of the church. Then the kingdom of God, as we're going to learn next week, comes in your hearts where the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is amongst us, but it is also building. And you need to understand as we work, God is working and he is superintending and superseding our meager small events in mustard seed humility as he's bringing forth his kingdom. Daniel 4 predicted this, verse 10, the visions of My head as I lay in bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful in its abundance and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in branches and all the flesh was fed from it. That's the kingdom of God. As you... Think about it, maybe as an analogy, you're like a kid trying to finish your semester and do your exam, knowing that you've got a parent paid for vacation around the corner, <laughs> or you're working your job trying to finish your project in project management work, and you know that there's an end in sight, and maybe a bonus around the corner, or retirement, right? Paul put it this way, he said, I run a race and I endure for an unfading crown of glory, This is what we live for. What stands in our way? Well, we lose faith when we look at man, when we look at ourselves and we say, man, I'm not cutting it. I can't do it anymore. Or that person scares me. I can't say this to that person because that person will hate me or hurt me or fire me. But the fear of man is a snare. The Lord is a safe place. Trust in him. We trust in his work, his kingdom. This is hope. This isn't pragmatism. This isn't name and claim it theology. This isn't for us to, um, you know, sort of cast a spell in this world and have something happen. It's not the pragmatism of the modern Calvinism movement. I believe in Reformed theology, but the modern young wrestles and Reformed was hipster and into themselves and trying to make things happen through pragmatic games and different um, things that... We're the exact opposite of trusting in God who is in control. God is building his kingdom. This is not about us. This is not about being cool. This is about presenting truth as seed and leaving the results to God. Here's the second, the second parable. The second parable is in a single verse. It makes the same point with a different nuance. It's the parable of hidden leaven, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, if you're thinking in terms of the influence of the kingdom of God, the power of God and it being expansive, now in terms of the leaven, think of it in terms of permeation, permeation, permeation. God is permeating in and through you the gospel. The word of God goes out person to person. 2 Timothy 2.2 is the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God. You can reach the world from Anchorage, Alaska. And this is a unique place. It's a, it's a uh, kind of a, a intriguing place to the, to the watching world, I think. There's a lot of, you know, 
goods and services that flow in and through Alaska, through the military. There's a lot of connection, a lot of people on um, sort of mission here for a few years and then come and go, and people who plant here, people who stay here, the fishing industry, the oil industry. There's a lot coming and going. So it's not a hard sell for us to understand that if you give the gospel influence someone, they're going somewhere else. And they're bringing that gospel with them. It's cross-pollinating around the country, around the globe, around the world. I was talking to somebody between services, and they were saying, yeah, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody else in a lower 48 context, a church context. And they said, yeah, I, I knew your church. I was there. Oh, I knew the Carl Burks. I used to teach at Grace Christian School. And they're down there, you know, in the lower 48, somewhere in that God-forsaken place. And, uh, you know, God's left there, but he hasn't left here. No. Um, yeah, I had that same kind of phone call. I talked to somebody in Oklahoma that was a comptroller for some counseling network, and I was talking to him, and it was uh, this guy. He's like, yeah, do you know Mike Taylor? Are you there? And I'm like, yeah, Grace, you know, Anchorage Grace Church, Grace Christian. He's like, I know all about you. I planted a church in, you know, the 80s with the Taylors and just just wild connections. But you can't all the way put your finger on what is God doing, but you can know and believe that he's doing it. You have to. You have to. So the hidden leaven, the nuance here is that it's hidden. It's behind the scenes. Um, This is the permeating work of leaven, this uh, dough that's fermented, that's that's injected in bread so that a mom can uh, grow a whole lot of bread for the household, for the kids. And the kids' families were big then. And so they all needed a lot of bread, and they ate a lot of bread. They were into that. And Um, You have servants, you have other people that need to be fed, you have people that visit and they need bread. And so this mom, probably in a Jewish context, watched by her children, would be in the kitchen behind the scenes making the bread and making it happen in the way that she does. And it was this, this one secret hidden function that made the bread turn from flat, unappetizing, Um, you know, untasty bread to spongy, big, expansive bread that people could eat. And it was feeding a lot of people. So it was an amazing thing um, for a kid to see, I'm sure. You have uh, Jesus who's making all kinds of analogies from common life with the farmer, with the sower, with the landowner, with the merchant we're going to learn about, with the person wandering through a field. Uh, Now, in this instance, you have the mother, you have the homemaker, the wife, who's making the bread to rise, doing what is to be expected. And it's the little leaven that is um, the agent of influence that's permeating the whole, creating the chemical reaction, doing something that is invisible behind uh, the scenes where it's chemically causing the bread to rise. I think I made the confession last week before last that I have this nagging habit of wondering what's cooking in the kitchen. And if you open that, if you open that oven door a little bit, you know, you're, you're messing with that rising process. So I have to be very careful. You just hit the oven light. But anyway, it, uh, it's, it's an important thing. And the three measures here of flour is the same amount that was used by Sarah in Genesis 18.6. Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah. There, there were strangers. There were visitors. Remember the two angels. There were three, but one was Christ himself, the Lord, visiting to give the news that Sarah would be with child. And, and 
What you have here is Abraham saying, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes, make a lot. Judges 9, 16 or 6, 19. So Gideon, and he's fooling the, uh, the Midianites, but he went to the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. This is that amount. Perhaps it, was, it were these amounts that were used um, in ancient times with Elijah, with the widow's son, but not sure, but... Old Testament times um, had the feast of the unleavened bread. And so why is leaven being put on display as something positive here? Feast of the unleavened bread was at Nisan, um, that fourth month in the ceremonial calendar for the Jews. And it was April 15th. And basically they would celebrate Passover during that time. And that was a time of the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, why? Because when the Israelites were under captivity, this is all a picture of the Old Testament version of the gospel. They were in bondage, like bondage of sin. They're under the enslavement of Pharaoh, a picture of Satan, and they're there, and they're being delivered, and God is putting plagues on them to counter all of their false teaching and their false witchery and their false idolatry, sending plagues of locusts, plagues of frogs, um, blood in the water, all these things, and ultimately, he's going to send the death angel to wipe out their firstborn son in all the households. But there's a covering of grace for God's people where he sets them apart and says, splatter the blood of your lamb on the doorpost as a protection, as a symbol of protection where the death angel won't touch you. It's a picture of the gospel of saving grace in each household. And so you have you have these people who are there and they're called at that point by the law, by God, by Moses, not to eat Um, not to put leaven in the bread, eat flatbread. And part of the symbolism there is to say, you need to make haste to get out of there. We don't have time for the bread to rise. So you're just eating the means that you have and you need to get out. But it's also a picture of cutting the cord from Egypt. You're leaving that land. You're not eating from their good bread anymore. You're leaving the leaven behind. You're disassociating yourself from their sinfulness. Paul brings this analogy into the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just a little bit of this agent will leaven the whole. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be the new lump. As you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So it's talking about the cleansing of the gospel. You've been cleansed of sin. So live in a cleansed way as a church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We know if one part of the body is hurt or smarting, if there's any area of sin in the body, it will affect the whole. Well, Paul in or Christ in reverse order here is saying that the little bit of agency, the little bit of hidden leaven will expand the whole of the bread. And it's positive here. Leaven is actually a neutral agent. There's nothing sinful about leavened bread, um, some you know, dough that's passed into um, the bread is not wrong to do. In terms of Leviticus 23, Israel was to offer leavened bread to the Lord. There's an illustration John MacArthur used of Jewish mothers um, who would give their daughter getting married a gift of a little piece of leaven from the last dough before the wedding. The girl starts the first loaf in the new marriage as a starter for her mother, symbolized all the best and good and blessedness of the family that she would give to her new family. It was carried on from next family to next family, passing the righteous seed on to the next generation. It's a picture of uh, growth and life in that regard. You can't get away from the humility of the woman, though. Listen, 
Don't miss the picture here. You are pictured as a believer, as a housewife in the kitchen, hiding the leaven in the dough, making, you know, this great effect. It's incredible. It's humility. You you do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Grace Christian School is behind the scenes work. There's a lot of ministry that goes on in the lives of children as they're hearing the gospel every single day. When I come to work, I see the kids, you know, lining up to class, to the bathroom, to the hallway, to recess, to doing this and that. And I pray for them. And I pray that the gospel is going into the hearts of the little ones. I hear chapel music going on. There's chapel messages that happen right here and over there that are invested in the lives of children. I think of the homeschool families that are populating our church where you're saying, I'm investing in the kids' lives at home and ministering the word of God and gospel, God-centered curriculum. You could choose other curriculum, but you choose the Bible to give a Christian worldview to your kid and those who are discipling your kids at home when they come back from school after a hard day to, um, to give them the truth. The word of God is going out. The kingdom is being built. The kingdom's being built through radio. It goes out all the time. I don't have a radio in my Bronco, so I don't listen to myself much. But I'm reminded sometimes if I'm riding, you know, in mama's car that uh, I, I hear it and the word is going out. And I think more importantly, it's going to villages. There's 25 villages that the sermons are broadcast to where Alaska natives are hearing the word of God. My call out to them if they hear this message is for churches to be raised up in the villages. I want indigenous Gospel preaching expositors, people who can exposit the word of God, preach the word of God in a house church setting in every village. And there's 200 of them to, uh, to see churches born and formed in or mobilized or strengthened in gospel influence. We have the seminary. We have um, so many things that are happening in Bible studies, a lot of behind the scenes work, prison ministry, things that are happening that we don't all communicate about or all know about. You can see some of that in the fall kickoff video, but the word of God is going out. God is doing his work here in Alaska in ways like this loaf of bread that's, that's just filling up and permeating in terms of size and influence. The hidden leaven does its work. Well, look at verses 34 and 35. This is a little commercial break just to ground us in the series as we close. But here Jesus is um, shown to being being one who teaches only in parables. Listen to what what Matthew says. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. That was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. What's Matthew doing here? He's basically explaining what Jesus is doing with his seven parables. Parables are meant to judge people who are hardening up to the gospel. They're a judgment. Saying you're either going to understand this or you're not. You either understand the nature of the kingdom and it's binary. You're in or out. Or you don't. You either understand that the power of the kingdom is there and it's meant for hope and it's going to win in the end. And then we'll learn next week, you need to understand the appropriation of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God comes in your hearts. But people who in Galilee were rejecting Jesus were rejecting his parable ministry, going, I don't really want to receive really what this means for my life. I don't want it. And so Jesus was teaching in parables, but there is a flipped um, little note of hope here with the reference... In verse 35, that is a reference from Psalm 78, 1 to 4. Let me just read verses 1 to 4 to show you where there is hope. It says, Give ear, 
O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Here's faith. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. What's hidden to unbelievers is readily available to believers. If you're an unbeliever, if you're part of the crowds instead of the disciples, you need to open your eyes, open your ears. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Open your ears, open your eyes, see the truth, see Christ, see life in light of the kingdom. I'm not saying check out of life until you're going to heaven. I'm saying live in light of heaven. That's heaven on earth. It's joy, peace, and life with the Holy Spirit in the Lord. Live that life. May it not be hidden from you, but may it be open to you. The disciples said, Jesus explained to us the secrets of the kingdom. And you should yourself go to Jesus and say, Jesus, explain to me what you have just taught me from Scripture. Explain it to my heart. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved.